millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This week, we meet the mother of a woman who transitioned. She talks about what it's like to support your child as you go through that, what she's learned about trans issues, and what she wishes every mother knew. Plus, we ask why so many schools seem to have a sexual harassment problem, and I help one listener work out how she gets back to work. First up, the story you might have seen this week, which I just am sort of in awe of the woman who started it, but also so sad that it's had to happen is the Excel sheet that was started. It started as an Instagram account, it's now an Excel sheet on a website, it's offering young women the chance to talk about their experiences of sexual harassment at school and particularly started in independent schools or private schools because that was where the girl who started it experienced it. But there have now been over 8,000 reported incidents. And the sort of thing that really struck me about some of the cases that have been mentioned and some of the incidents that have been talked about is just how casual the level of misogyny is. So how normal it is for boys to rank the girls as they come through the school, how normal it is for boys to expect that women want to have sex or as they euphemistically put it in the news, perform sex acts on them and how casual it is to assume that actually you can harass or abuse a young woman and walk away that it doesn't really matter it started out mainly around Dulwich College I think was the first one to kind of be really targeted and then the head teacher of Dulwich College when he found out there was going to be a protest about this emailed all the parents to say just to let you know it's illegal for children to gather outside right now so if you do that we're going to report them to the police and they could be in trouble the fact that as a head teacher, you think it's okay to call out illegal acting when it comes to a protest, but not okay to do it when it comes to sexual harassment in your school is astonishing to me. And I think that's really shows kind of where the problem lies here, because I think there are two things going on here. So there is the thing that the Daily Mail is going to talk about, which is the rise of pornography and how that has impacted young men. And we absolutely have to talk about that. If you haven't listened to it, John Watson has a brilliant podcast on the pornography industry. Uh, it's called The Butterfly Effect. And he looks at kind of the impact of pornography on our world and particularly in the last 20 years when it's become just everywhere. One of the things he looks at is the impact that it's had on young men. So he talks to one young man who's now on the sex offenders list because he sent his girlfriend 
or new girlfriend some very like very sexually aggressive messages because that's what he'd seen in porn and he thought that was normal. And then he also looks at a survey which shows that more and more young men are finding it harder to gain an erection, harder to climax because they quite frankly are so used to jerking off to porn that they have no idea what it's like in real life. It doesn't feel the same. It doesn't turn them on in the same way. Everything in their body is being kind of sensitized towards pornography and not real sex. That is a big societal issue, okay? And we need definitely need to be addressing that. And if you have kids, you need to be talking to them about the difference between pornography and sex in real life because it is very different. But the other big issue that nobody is talking about here is the casual sexism that exists in schools from the education staff. So if you look at the number of head teachers in this country who are women, it's really low. I think it's still around the kind of 20-25% mark. So in terms of the number of teachers who are women versus the number of head teachers who are women, we can see there is a problem, I'm sure, of casual sexism there, right? So there is a problem that still says our unconscious bias says a leader is a man. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is this attitude which says boys will be boys. So I remember when I was at school, my head teacher, who was a woman, also a nun, don't know if that comes into it, but she was, my head teacher essentially had a rule which was what you did at school stayed at school. So her attitude was that she didn't want the women, I went to an all-girls school, she didn't want the young women from her school going into the world tainted in some way. She wanted them to go into the world with a clean slate. So whatever you did at school was dealt with by the school. Now, this is a very noble way of looking at it, but it caused some big problems because it meant that I was at school with girls who had drug issues, who had eating disorders, who were self-harming, and none of that stuff was actually put out into the real world. There were never any consequences for it. There was never anyone saying, actually, this is harming your life and you're going to have to change your behavior. I don't know. I'm not a child psychologist. I don't know whether her approach was the right one or the wrong one. But I do know that when I was at that school, I was looking at some of the girls and thinking, I think your life would be better if somebody took a bit of a stronger line right now. Now, if we apply that rule of what goes on in school stays in school to boys, we know that some of the big issues they are going to be thinking about is how boys behave around women, how they behave to each other, harassment and bullying. And then there's all the other stuff, which is gender neutral, right? Which is like drugs and food and how we see ourselves and all that stuff. But for young boys right now, there is a big problem around masculinity and how it is portrayed at school. And if schools are not dealing with that in the real world, If they are saying, do you know what, what goes on in school stays in school, we'll deal with it here, we'll cover stuff up so that nobody has to know about it, so that you can go into the real world with a clean slate. If they're doing that at the expense of young women, that is not okay. And unfortunately, that means we need to have conversations with boys much earlier about what respect is, about what consent is, about how their hormones are going to make them feel about what they might see on the internet, about how they might think that then interprets into the real world and the impact of all of that on women. And we need to be having those conversations with young women, which says it's okay if stuff happens that you're not comfortable with to stand up and say this has happened because you will be supported and you will be believed. I really hope we can do that because just reading the accounts of all these young women whose lives have been not maybe traumatized for all of them, but certainly made a little bit harder, made a little bit, made to feel a little bit less worthy, made to feel a little bit less safe in their school environment. That's not okay. And we need to change it. 
This week, my guest is Elizabeth Spencer. Her new book looks at what it was like to be the mother of a child who transitions. She talks about feeling guilty that she didn't realize what was going on, what she's learned about trans rights since then, and what she wishes she'd done differently. This is Elizabeth. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Hi, Elizabeth. Yes. So let's sort of give some context to this. You're the mother to a son, you think, and then at the age of 21, they tell you something that completely changes how you see them. Up until that point, did you have any idea that that they would want to transition or this would even be on the cards for them? No, I had no idea. It came as a bolt out of the blue. I had always known that my uh, child, the child I thought was my son, was very unhappy. He had struggled with uh, depression and was very withdrawn right through his childhood and adolescence. And I knew fundamentally that there was something wrong. And I tried very hard to find out what it was. But this uh, possibility wasn't one that had crossed my mind. Um, and, and to be fair on myself, I think, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, it, the, uh, there wasn't so much public dialogue around, uh, transitioning and it wasn't really on my radar. So of all the things I might have thought it was, and, and I went through many thoughts in my head of, I don't know, not being a good enough mother or, well, usually I blamed myself. <laughs> in some way or another, but I did not expect it. And the night that my daughter came out to me was, well, I mean, I was astonished. And But also I suddenly felt, oh, now, now I, maybe this does make sense. Maybe this is the reason. Maybe now we will be able to find a way to be happier. And so I, I felt a great hope at the moment that she came out to me. But it was it was a complete surprise. When she came out to you, what happened next? Because I think this is, you know, this is something that parents across the country are thinking about now, right? We talk about trans issues, about transitioning much more widely now. And so parents across the country are aware that this is a possibility for their child. But I don't think any of them would really know what they would do or what they should ask. What have you learnt comes next in that stage? For me, it was uh, very entwined with the fact that at exactly the same time as my daughter came out, uh, my husband was diagnosed with a, a terminal illness. And on the one hand, you might think that was extremely bad timing. On the other hand, the way I understood it from my daughter was that she, that was the trigger point for her. She felt that she could no longer go on without her, uh, stepfather, who she, um, considered to be her father, who he'd been in her life for, for a very long time without him knowing who she truly was. So that was the trigger point, but it also meant that at that time, we were both, or well, as a family, we were in, in quite a vortex of shock. The first step when she came up was really for me to ask, why, why now? Why, why have you only told me now? And I was very saddened that she felt that 
she hadn't previously been able to feel safe to come out to me. And uh, so I had to look very hard at myself uh, over a period of time and, and talk to her a great deal just about what lay behind this and why uh, she hadn't felt safe, uh, why she felt that I would be judgmental, uh, when, when in fact I, I wasn't. But we had to establish trust between ourselves first. And it was from that point that the, I think the process could really start to begin. Her first steps were to, um, visit the, the GP and try and talk to the GP about uh, her wish to transition and uh, to be referred to uh, the gender identity clinic. But that is an extremely uh, slow process. And it's something I really want to bring out in the book because I think that there, there, there is a huge lack in trans uh, health care in the UK. And people are waiting and suffering very greatly and over long periods of time. So once that, once that step was taken, really it was a matter of very, very, uh, private and incremental steps towards, uh, firstly presenting in her affirmed gender. So choosing to present as a female, as a woman. And, uh, there's a very clear pathway medically and psychologically that you have to progress through in order to transition and uh, my daughter did a, a great deal of research into what she needed to do in terms of firstly living for a year uh, and it's it's called real life experience you have to present in your affirmed gender publicly so she had to begin to go out publicly dressed as a woman and she was uh, and she did that in very modest ways at, at first. It wasn't a question of, of, you know, casting off her previous look and, and then, you know, it's skipping out in the dress. It, it was, it was not crass. It was a, yeah. it was a, a tentative process and she needed to gain her own confidence in doing that. And over time she did gain that confidence until the point where she felt able to go out publicly. She then had to um, have the, take the step of coming out at work and, and to all her friends and family, uh, and then live in her affirmed gender for a year be- before she could even contemplate the next step on the journey, which was her hope of receiving hormones to change, to feminize her hormone profile. There's also, uh, various stages of psychotherapy that you have to go through. I think, I think there's a, a very common perception that, uh, being trans is, is almost like a fad these days and that it's all, too, that it's all too easy for people to seemingly on a whim decide that they are, that they are trans. And so I, I very much want to bring out in the book that there are, uh, extremely, um, grueling hurdles and obstacles that are, are placed uh, in the path of anyone who wants to transition. And one thing that I, I have certainly learned is that nobody would put them through that ordeal unless they were absolutely desperate. You raised something that's really interesting and I think is talked about a lot at the moment, which is, 
in younger and younger children deciding that they are trans or coming out as trans and you know the sort of the push and pull between one side who thinks actually we should support any child that comes out as trans and we should help them you know kind of go down that journey as as quickly as possible and another side which says actually you know this is kids and kids say these things and actually we can't expect any kid to know who they are until they're much older what has your experience taught you about that I am personally very glad that my daughter didn't come out to me until the point where she was uh, of age and able to make those decisions for herself. I feel very much for parents of, of younger children who are confronted with, with having to make those decisions because I, I see this, this the politicization of, of this debate and I know what it's like to have a child in, in absolute despair and you know, if you, you love your child, you want to help them. On the on the other hand, there there are these gatekeepers. <laughs> I, I think it's a, a really invidious position to be in, and I, I have the greatest respect for for parents who are able to to navigate that pathway for their young child and support them through that. I think, uh, frankly, I think I got off lightly because I didn't have to think about those mm. those those things, and I am not. One, one thing I'm very careful of in writing the book is actually not to enter into that kind of debate. It's not because I don't have opinions. I, I very much do. But my hope is that by steering a pathway between the sort of two ends of the polemic, I can just encourage people to to really think about the processes, the psychological journey, emotional journey, and uh, to develop, uh, just to, to learn to have more compassion and a more balanced view, because from that point, I think we'll be able to have a, a calmer and more generous debate about these things, rather than, than having it uh, polarised between two extremes. As a mother, do you worry for your daughter and for her safety and her mental health when we see, you know, on social media today, just how polarizing and angry and really sometimes very, very cruel this debate has become? I, I very much, I very much do. And, and as I, I just said, one of my great hopes was that by, by writing a very honest, and balanced book that, that drew on, you know, history, science, psychology, personal, uh, personal meditation, personal experience mm. that I could sort of create a space where that was outside the, that polarized debate. I do, uh, of course, worry for my daughter's health, happiness and safety, but yeah. social parents. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and one thing I, really think about this book is that it's as much a story of motherhood as it is about trans issues, actually, because all parents, whatever their relationship with their child, whatever their child's particular problems, we all worry. We're always second guessing what's best for our children. We, we hope for the best. We try our hardest. We fail. We succeed. We despair. We, we rejoice. That is that is what it means to be a mother. And, and I think that as the mother of a trans daughter, that particular journey is actually can speak to any mother.
What I thought was really interesting about the book was you say, you know, that actually you can't talk about the journey of transitioning because it's not your story. It's your daughter's story. But what you can talk about is the transition you went through as a mother. Did you, can you tell us about some of those feelings that you had about the sort of the process you had to go through to come to terms with this? Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, this this really is the essence of the book. I can only talk about my role in my daughter's journey. It's it's her journey. It's her story. But the book is about my journey, how I learnt about what it means to be trans, what it means to love someone who is trans, uh, how I educated myself on what it means to be trans, and how I grew as a person because of that and I I hope it is quite a life-affirming book really in that way because I had to confront the fact firstly that my daughter did not initially feel safe to tell me Mm. Uh, I had to look at why that might be and find myself wanting and I had to consider how I needed to change in myself to be the kind of loving mother that my child deserved. I, I always loved my my child. I'm not saying that before that I was, wasn't was a loving parent. I hope that I was, but I was in some way clearly not offering her what, what she needed, but maybe what I thought she needed. And yeah. that, that as a parent-child relationship, or any relationship really, I suppose, always goes through a process of, of balancing and the important thing is to to learn. And I tried, I really tried to learn. I put uh, a lot of time into to reading, um, to learning to read scientific studies, to try and understand the medical side of things. I read history. I read gender studies. I really tried very hard to educate myself so that I could offer more support and that I could offer that support from a place, an intelligent place that was not clouded by by prejudice or, or unscrutinized emotion, because I thought that would be how I could help her best. But I recognized that in, in many ways, I didn't do, there, there were many times I got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And I repeatedly look at those times in the book and I I consider why I got it wrong and I tried to learn from that. Do you think it's made you a better mother? Oh very much so yes very much so because I had to learn to be the mother that my child needed not Mm. the mother that I thought I was or should be and really you know our responsibility as a parent is to be the best parent we can to our child not just to engage in some kind of portrait of parenthood if you like it's a, it's a very individual thing how has it changed your relationship with your daughter oh very much for the better but i think that that change has come from both sides because as i say in her younger years my daughter was extremely uh withdrawn uh depressed i didn't feel able to reach her so she is now more able to be open with me and I am more able to be open with her. And I think she feels much more supported by me now. I've tried my best to support her. And 
I feel that I have a closer relationship with my child. So it's, it's a very mutual and nurturing uh, relationship that's grown out of this. What advice would you give to any other mother who finds themselves in the position where their child comes to them and says they want to transition? My first and most important advice would be to listen to your child. And I mean, really listen to them, not just hear the words, but listen to their story and let them open up to you and be prepared to sit and listen. And I listened for many, many, many hours, not just on that first night, but over as, as the years went by, my daughter felt often that she wanted to talk to me about things in the past that had caused her pain. Mm. And I, and often they were very, very difficult to hear, but I think being prepared to listen and to listen openly and to examine yourself when you hear things that you don't like, especially things about yourself, to have the honesty to uh, respect what you're hearing, respect your child and what they're saying and look at yourself and try and, and bridge that gap. I think that is fantastic advice. Elizabeth, it's so lovely to talk to you and I think you offer such a thoughtful and considered considered approach to what must have been a really deeply personal and if not difficult at least you know very uh, kind of a period of extreme growth let's call it that, a period of extreme growth so thank you so much for sharing your story with us it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you um elizabeth's book the road to my daughter is out now A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And finally tonight, it is a question from a listener. So this listener is wondering about kind of changing careers, getting back into the workplace and whether or not now is the right time. So here's what she said. I've had a job that I've loved for 15 years and it's been great. It's let me have kids. It's supported me when I haven't been sure what I wanted to do. And it's given me a good living, but I've never loved it. It's never felt like my passion. Over the past year, I've thought about things I really want to be doing with my time. Working from home has given me an opportunity to see that perhaps work could be different and there's more that I could be doing. But I don't know if I'm ready to give up the security and safety of my long-term job. Should I be looking for something else? Should I be starting a business on my own? Or should I be staying where I am and just hoping it all works out? 
After all, I've loved working here for 15 years and it does really suit me. What should I do? Now, there's not really a lot of detail in here because I'm not sure what you do or what you want to do or what you think might be better. But here's what I do know about passion and work. Sometimes our work is not our passion and that is okay. I think our modern culture has encouraged us to think of work as this thing we do because we love it and we're so excited about it and that it is in some way fulfilling for us. And that is amazing if you can get that from your work. But there is a reason that we get paid to go to work. And that's because for a lot of us, our jobs are not fulfilling. They're not the thing that get us up in the morning. They're not the thing that light us up. But it's okay because at the end of the month, we take home a paycheck and that allows us to do the stuff that feels exciting and we feel passionately about. Now, I would ask yourself, the things that you do feel passionately about, can you make a living from them? So actually, what would you be doing with them? Is there a clear career path that you want to be taking? Or is this something that you think you could make a living out of, but you're not sure? Either way, you need to start doing some research. So I would start talking to people who are perhaps doing jobs you think you'd like to be doing, or perhaps have started their own business, or perhaps are working in the area that you're interested in. Do your research and try and find out what does a career in this area look like? What are the good bits, but also what are the difficult bits? Because there will be some. And then I'd ask yourself what it is about your current job that has meant you wanted to stay there for 15 years. So 15 years is a long time to stay in a job. You don't say whether you've moved around or whether it's the same company, but 15 years, even with the same company doing lots of different jobs is a long term. So there must be something that you're getting out of it. Is it that you really like your colleagues? Is it that you really enjoy the work? Is it that the money is fantastic? What does it give you that has meant you haven't wanted to move for 15 years? And then look at the reasons that you haven't moved. So is it because you just love it too much? Is it because you don't think there's anything better out there? Well, from what you've said, that doesn't seem quite right. Or is it because you haven't had the confidence you've thought you wouldn't get another job anywhere else? If so, you are not alone. We know that women tend to move jobs less than men because they feel higher levels of loyalty to their company. And that is a really great thing, but it does sometimes stop us exploring other options. So if perhaps you haven't moved because you've been concerned that you wouldn't get another job or you wouldn't be appreciated or that it would be too much of a risk to move. I think you might want to spend a bit of time doing some work, maybe with a coach or a therapist around what drives those beliefs and how you can mitigate them before you move. Because quitting your job now in a blaze of glory and leaping into the unknown might seem really fun, but it's scary. And you need to make sure that you at your deepest core level are really ready for it before you do that. So do your research. Think about doing some research into the industry, but also into yourself. What motivates you? Why haven't you moved? What are you scared of? And what do you think you want from your life? And get really clear on those things. And when you do that, I think you'll know the answer about whether to stay or go. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you have, please do rate, review, subscribe, please. It allows other people to find us. And also, it's just really nice when somebody leaves you a nice review. You know, makes you realize people are listening. If you want to come and talk to me during the week or you want to send me a problem you'd like some help with, you can drop me a message at Harriet Minter on all the socials or harriet.minter at gmail.com, whichever. Otherwise, I'll be here again next week, same time, same place, with another Badass Women's Hour. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. 
It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.